welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. This is Season 6, Episode 7, Search by the Mule, covering Part 1, Chapters 1 to 6 of Second Foundation by Isaac Asimov. The hosts have all varying levels of knowledge and of this book and this series. My name is Dan, and I've only read up to this point. My name is Talia. I've only read up to this point as well. My name is Priya, and I have only read up to this point also. Well, before we get started, I just wanted to give a shout out to a podcast that I found in the break since we recorded last episode called Selden Crisis Podcast. Um, it's run by a really nice guy I saw on Twitter. And actually, I saw it because <laughs> I was looking for more information about the mule after I read this this part um, because I was like, oh, it's safe now to look for more information about the mule, right? Um, so I saw his post on Reddit talking about it and checked it out. And it's really cool. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit different style than ours. Actually, it's weird because like it's, it's he's exactly at the same point we are. <laughs> he just recorded uh, the the last part of Foundation Empire, and I think he's the next one's coming out. But it's a different style. His is more of like a dramatic, like a retelling of the story with you know really good production of of uh, sound effects and voices and all that stuff, uh, and a little bit of um, color on top of you know his experiences reading it. Uh, where ours is more of like a reaction sort of episode <laughs> to uh, to the story since we're all first time listeners, but. Definitely recommend you checking it out. I'll link it in the show notes. And he also sent along a promo that I'll attach to the end of this episode. So yeah, recommend everyone check that out. So going into this episode, um, just a little bit of history on it. So part one, uh, Search by the Mule, was originally published in January 1948 of Astounding Science Fiction uh, under the title Now You See It. And I will also, I found another uh, scanning of it on archive.org. And has some, yeah, you know, also really cool uh, artwork. So, yeah, definitely check that out. And now for the summary for this, the first part of Second Foundation. In the five years since Eblingness was killed on Trantor, the mule, once known as Magnifico, now known as First Citizen of the Union, has worked to consolidate his power rather than continue his rapid expansion. The mule sends Han Pritcher and a rising officer named Bail Chanis to continue the search for the Second Foundation. The mule believes that Chanis might have some new ideas since he is unconverted, but warns him against crossing him with a brief demonstration of his ability to implant emotions into his mind. The mule is quickly proven correct when on Trantor, Chanis finds the only clue to the location of the second foundation is in a place called Star's End and discovers a world in an otherwise void part of space from the viewpoint of Trantor named Tazenda and decides to go there. En route, Chanis is alerted to a hyperwave relay that has been found aboard the ship. He tells the engineer to leave it where he found it. They land and meet with the locals on a small, cold village planet named Rossum, just outside Tazenda. The locals tell them that they're under Tazendian control and that the local governor has already been expecting them for a week. Chanis continues to insist that they keep playing the game to lure out the Second Foundation, but Pritcher is now as convinced as ever that Chanis has committed treason against the Mule's union and places him under arrest. Pritchard tells them that they've been followed by the mule, who will be here shortly, but Chanis insists that it's the second foundation who has followed them. Just as Pritchard is about to be convinced, the mule enters the room, and the game is up for Chanis. The mule has understood all along that Chanis isn't working for the second foundation, but is from the second foundation. He felt him briefly mentally struggle against him previously, a power that only a second foundationer would have. Chanis plays the last card he has before the mule can kill him. He unconverts Pritchard and holds him. If the mule kills Chanis, Pritchard, now filled with rage, will certainly kill the mule. The mule realizes his position and says it doesn't matter anyway, since his fleet is already on the way to destroy Tazenda and the Second Foundation. The mule then seizes on the opportunity to probe Chanis even further about the origins of the Second Foundation, and eventually gets Chanis to admit that Rossum, not Tazenda, is actually the home of the Second Foundation. Then a character we've been hearing about from the perspective of a meeting within the Second Foundation, known only as a first speaker, enters the room. The first speaker says Chanis volunteered to infiltrate the mule's union, specifically because he was his mental inferior. Otherwise, the mule's overconfidence might not have allowed him to lead the expedition in the first place that led to the mule into their trap. What's more, prior to the mission, the Second Foundation implanted the false idea of Tazenda and Rossum being the homes of the Second Foundation. In a moment of brief despair for the mule, the first speaker takes his own opportunity to seize control of the mule's mind and makes him forget the Second Foundation, return to Kalgan, and rule in peace for the rest of his short, airless life. And for the characters in the first part of Second Foundation, Bail Chanis, an up-and-coming officer in the service of the Mule, 
picked by the mule to lead the expedition to find the second foundation. Speakers, an enigmatic shadow council with mental communication abilities who appear to lead the second foundation. The first speaker, the apparent leader of the second foundation. Nerovi, farmer on Rossum who's the first to meet with Pritcher and Chanis. And recurring characters Han Pritcher, promoted to Lieutenant General, and the mule, also known as Magnifico, or the first citizen. All right, so what did you all think of this part of that the first part of second foundation the mule the mutant who seemed to overthrow all of the selden crisis by the end of this chapter it was like easy come easy go yeah <laughs> there were a lot of twists um, a lot of twists yeah it's yeah. a very enjoyable section to read for me i feel like the twists and turns might have started to feel a little bit like wearisome if it hadn't been for the fact that what i loved the most about this section is how much you kind of start to think about like human psychology. And I liked that you get more of a sense of how the characters are feeling, particularly glimpses into Han Pritcher's mindset. So that to me was the more fascinating part of this. The twists and turns, meanwhile, feel kind of like this constant like one upping of one character by the other. Yeah. which is which can feel a little bit like almost like campy at times <laughs> but um i think that that in general this part is really well written in terms of like understanding like character motivations and the internal like struggles going on for at least like han pritcher so that was very interesting to me i found this to be much better i mean i liked it on the first well Actually, like for this one, I, I listened to it on an audiobook because I just had some free time and was listening to for the, just the first uh, read, you know, quote unquote read through. Um, but I, I read it again and I, I, I found it like a lot better. I think for reasons you're saying is because you kind of understand the mindset of, you know, you understand like what's going to happen and like why people are doing things. And not only that, but it's like, are they being manipulated to do these things? <laughs> so like that's another aspect on top of all their things. Like not only are they have motivations, you know, pers- like Pritchard has his own personal motivations, but they're also being controlled by not only the mule, but maybe the second foundation or maybe both, or, you know, who's not controlled by the, the second, the, one of the foundations. And yeah, it's, I think the the whole mind control aspect is, is very fascinating. This gives it like a really interesting dimension to the story. Um, but yeah, I was into it, uh, into, uh, into all the twists and turns even more than, you know, we only had one twist turn like last time with the mule mm-hmm. being revealed. And now it's like, we have, I don't know, four or five or six it's like every every other paragraph is like a twist but once again they do seem to build on each other like when the mule is discovering this weakness and pushing his advantage to probe even further into bail chanis it's again returning to whether you call it psychohistory or human behavior their understanding that someone is paranoid and power hungry um as the mule as soon as he discovers an advantage he won't check himself and won't like be aware of the dangers. He'll just try and push that advantage. And once again, they're able to uh, be one step ahead, which is a very satisfying twist. Yeah. I mean, his overconfidence. Kind of in, Definitely. In, yeah. He has, he has such overconfidence, but he also has that, that vulnerability there, right? Like he has like the, the second, found, the first speaker, they called him out, like, you know, his, his, um, his inferiority complex, right? That's really what's mm-hmm. the best of him, right? Like he, and, and you can really see that coming out in this section, I think more, even more than last one, even though he says it explicitly last time, like this time is like, he seems to be like more of like a madman, right? Like he seems more villainous in this one than, than the last one. Maybe because other people are, you know, issuing that judgment instead of him just confessing. They're like, right, yeah, right. no, you have a deep inferiority complex <laughs> and we are wildly overconfident to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I liked how he said that when, the, when the, the first speaker was explaining to him, like, why Chanis went in the first place. Like, well, because, like, he's not as good as you at this. And, like, if I would have went, you just would have killed me, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. you would have realized I'm your equal. And so, like, you have, like, this overconfidence that you need. And, like, you figured you just could control it. You could control the situation, even though you knew it was mm-hmm. from the second foundation. So yeah, like there's a lot of like good explanation and 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 delving into the mule's character. So I actually um switched from uh listening on audiobook to um reading the text again and I'm kind of really glad I did because this was particularly a section I feel that I didn't want to like risk ever tuning out on because there were some really really good writing and really good quotes that I like kept highlighting throughout as I was reading. So I think that 
like switching back to the text for this book really made sense. Um, though I feel like Dan, you're doing both, right? So I feel like that's yeah. like you're getting like both experiences, the best of both <laughs> worlds. So I, I wouldn't discourage the audiobook, but I think that having the text for this is really kind of special because there are a lot of really great lines in this in this part. Yeah, I would never not read it. I think, I mean, I know, you know, just because of the show, like I know that I'm going to like listen, like go through the text at least twice. Uh, and so like I, I knew at least I would, I'd listen to it and just kind of get like the gist of the story, you know, just kind of understand what's happening. And then, yeah, go back and, and read it more thoroughly. Even listening to it, you can still like hear those interesting quotes. And like, especially, you know, in the last chapter, like there's like this tons of cool stuff is happening. So, so one thing I also picked up on listening to it was in the beginning, it, the prose is a little bit strange, I think. Um, you know, it's coming from like a third party perspective. And I wonder if that's an intentional choice. Like there's a prologue, which is more of, uh, yeah, like a recap. And, and maybe that's, you know, meant to be not like in, in world, but like the book, the the interludes, especially like they talk about like the second foundation is like, and as like almost like a news reporter, right? Like, oh, you can't really understand what they're talking about, but this is like uh, a representation of like what they would be if they're actually talking, but they actually don't use speech because it's inefficient. So I just wonder, like, if you all have any opinion of the, did you did you did you see that too? Did you do you think that's coming from a different perspective from somebody else? Is that important, or am I making too much of it? I definitely found it to be a really good like plot device in a sense because. I think that it clues us into a lot of things that they would have to otherwise probably spend a lot more time doing exposition to kind of lay out for us. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, I didn't really find myself wondering like who is, um, who is the narrator? Uh, but I just thought it was like a good, the interludes are like very helpful um, versus just giving us like historical background. They're telling us sort of what's happening in real time as far as the plot is concerned. So I thought it was like helpful storytelling device. I, I was really excited when I, when I first listened to it and I heard like, oh, the second foundation, like didn't like they're talking with their minds and it's like, whoa, that's, that's really awesome. <laughs> like I was, I, I was, in, I was really into that part. I mean, hopefully we hear more from that. I mean, presumably we'll hear more from the Second Foundation perspective in the rest of this book. I mean, the book's called Second Foundation, but... Yeah, that, <laughs> it's it's very fascinating. Uh, how, how about you, Talia? Do you have any, any thoughts around that? Well, yes, hopefully more superpowers than just one mutant in 20,000 years. <laughs> I hope we see more of that mental aspects. I was keeping my mouth shut about this because I was, you know, like you, Dan, listening to this a little bit on audio, but I was reading this on an e-reader in the beginning, um, in the first couple chapters. And I remember my father had walked into the room because I had gone home for the weekend. And I was like, reading these dramatically, because I was like, oh, this is such a good part of the book. Don't you want to read Second <laughs> Foundation? <laughs> he was like, well, no. <laughs> and so obviously, it doesn't convince you unless you're already in the swell of, of reading, I think. Oh, so he had listened to, or he had read Foundation. Cause you, you had his book for Foundation, right? So he didn't continue. Yeah, he'd read the uh, Foundation like a long, long time ago. Good memory. Uh, but he, he wasn't into it enough to continue. I guess not uh, until he listens to this episode. Yeah, regrets his old ways. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. I mean, like I, to me, like the story is just getting better and better, right? Yeah, but like I, I might not have continued past book one if it weren't for this podcast, and then I wouldn't have gotten to this part, which I actually really like. So, yeah, thankfully because of the podcast, I'm reading further, and I actually <laughs> like this part a lot. It has changed styles quite a bit, you know. Like now, it's like a lot more. Like there's a lot more exploration of character. The the, the motivations are, are, you know, are more clear. That the stories are kind of more intimate, I guess, but also grander in a way. You know, like good the, description. The, yeah, the stories were really grand in like the first one, but like there's no, like you had Mallow or Hardin, right? Like they're interesting characters, but they, you didn't really know much about them other than like very surface level. But I feel like we really got to know like Beta, the mule, uh, even mm -hmm. Critcher here, like, um, and Chanis too. Like we have a lot of good information about these characters to kind of drive home that motivation. Yeah, that's a really good good uh, description of it being like more intimate, but but like on more grand at the same time. I, I like that. Well, the next thing I, I, I this kind of another point I, I caught up on was 
that, that part that like really fascinates me and like I, I like these kind of like world building kind of aspects to stories where Chanis was talking about the kind of news coverage of the second foundation. And I pulled out the quote because I just think it was, it was a really, really interesting way to kind of show like what the average people, you know, in the, in the, in the union now are talking about as with having the second foundation. So it's, the quote is saying, um, the newsware supplements are full of nothing else lately, which is probably significant. The cosmos had one of its future writers compose a weirdy about a world consisting of beings of pure mind. The second foundation you see who had developed mental force to entities large enough to compete with any known physical science. Spaceships could be blasted light years away. Planets could be turned out of their orbits. So I, I, I don't know. I'm, mm-hmm. I just like that, that kind of stuff where the, the kind of rumors and you know, the, the mule had that too, right? Like the, the mule, um, self-perpetuating <laughs> rumors, but still like you had the, the, the rumors of like his powers and like how he physically imposing he was and how he can, you know, kill people by, with his eyes and that kind of thing. So this is just more of that, that kind of thing that I'm, I'm really into. Yeah, it definitely creates more of that sense of like mystery around around a character or in this case, like an entity known as a second foundation where you kind of the more you know, the less you know, in a sense, and the more you want to find out. So I think that that sort of builds up that like suspense almost about and, and it also builds your expectations for what you're about to find out. I'm once again going to urge my co-hosts and listeners to read The Gods Themselves by Isaac Asimov, um, particularly pertaining to that quote, the cosmos uh, had one of its feature writers compose a weirdy about the world consisting of beings of pure mind. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Next on the list. <laughs> yeah. And also like just thinking about it a little bit more, like all the talk on on Rossum from the um, the, the farmer like that was also pretty interesting, like talking about like, the Tizendians uh, coming there and just kind of like the talk of like them being like more powerful. And like, just, I, I think I tend to like stories that are told, especially like when we have stories like from the leadership, right? Like this is like the leader, the mule is the leader, Bit and Chanis and Pritchard, like kind of the leaders of the story and like they're important, significant figures, right? And what I really like is when stories will take, take uh, an aside of like, characters that aren't the leadership talking about like things that are happening in the world just like from the perspective of an ordinary citizen i I really like those kind of things and i haven't talked about it in a while but i will it always reminds me of a good star trek episode called lower decks not the not the new tv show but the like the next generation episode called lower decks where it just totally focuses on like the lower people in the um and and the enterprise and they kind of like um talk about Riker as like this really overbearing boss <laughs> sometimes and like Picard is like this kind of almost mythical figure so I, I don't know that 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 this part also struck me as, as sort of like that where the the lower uh, people are kind of talking about the more world building kind of stuff the next thing I want to talk about is the just the more talking about the second foundation and how they communicate and you know, the the narrator in this in this case talks a lot about like how they they don't speak with words because it's inefficient. Um, so the quote here is saying, a fragment of a sentence amounted to a long-winded redundancy, a gesture, a grunt, a curve of a facial line, even a significantly timed pause yielded informational juice. Um, and I know we go back to this all the time and maybe too much, I don't know. <laughs> but it reminded me of uh, of the the part in, uh, in Death End. I love End, that quote. <laughs> uh, and, and Dark Forest. Where, Dark um, Forest, exactly. Yeah, Dark Forest during the Battle of Darkness where they they speak wordlessly. Right. And that seems to be like a, um, and I'm not going to talk too much about it because I don't want to give spoilers for people when I listen to that or read that book. Um, but needless to say, like talking wordlessly seems to be more of a thing in the future for humanity in that series. Uh, and this seems to be even a further evolution of it. Right. Um, mm. where people don't even like speak anymore. They just like see twitches in people's faces and that, that you know makes for <laughs> a whole an entire conversation that happens really fast. Also, Zhang Beihai and his father seem to have full conversations with like the same phrases being repeated once or twice, and then just staring at each other. So, yeah, uh, I agree. This did remind me of uh, of that series as well. And of course, the Trisolarans themselves, right? Who, oh, true. Yeah, who communicate not through speech, but speech and thought are sort of the same thing which is also why it's impossible for them to lie so that's that 
puts you in a very interesting territory where you have people communicating only through through their minds versus speech. Hmm. I wanted to ask about the whole concept of emotional control and how you guys read it. Do you think that lying is possible in emotional control in that paradigm? Like if you can sense someone's emotions, is lying all about emotion or would someone still be able to deceive? Well, I immediately think of like lie detector tests and how they can sense like a change in your like physiology. And I'm sure that like if if a person were capable of tapping into your emotions, there would be a change in emotion if a person were lying a certain type of change. So I would imagine that it would make lying more difficult. But Pritchard, Pritchard lies in this chapter, right? He's, li- he's lying to the Rossumites, to other people. He just can't fool the mule specifically. That's what I'm asking about. Like, yeah. could someone who controls your emotions or can see your emotions be lied to? It seems like Priya suggesting you could with training. I'm just curious how you read it. Maybe. I don't, I think like, it, it's it's hard to tell, I think, but it seems like there's more to the mule's um, abilities than just emotional control. Oh, because, well, since yeah. he can smite people dead with it. I yeah. Think, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like he can also, I think he can also like read emotions and maybe that would be like, like she's saying, like the lie detector test, like. The mm-hmm. mule will be able to tell that if you're lying to him about something that he was interested in, right? Yeah, I think like an ordinary person wouldn't be able to tell or a person who is not actively engaged in controlling that person's emotions or tapping into that person's emotions would just then be relying on speech itself. But then if you have someone who is so, I guess, intricately entangled in your emotions, they would probably be probably be able to tell when you're lying. And I think proof of that might also be that the mule is able to sense a momentary resistance in um, Chanis. Yeah, yeah, in Chanis when he tries to um, tap into his emotions. So just that momentary resistance kind of clues him in that he he's not able to control his mind perfectly and that well, he can only be a second foundationer if that's the case. Right, because who else could actually have those mental powers? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the mule always like he he had previously described it as like a dial, so maybe it's even closer to like the lie detector test, right? Like you can see like the needle going to a particular place, and the, so the oh, mule yeah. would know that he's lying, right? I thought it was really interesting the way that was described. That was in the last in the last book, right? Not in this one. Yeah, yeah, last one. Right, because it was just so visual, which is a really yummy way to think about purely mental um, ability and communication. But also because it reminded me of like reading about synesthesia, a wiki hole I'm sure we've all gone down, in that most people with synesthesia don't realize or describe it or recognize it for a long time just because they don't realize that's how, it's not how everyone is. Like, oh, what do you mean? You guys can't tell exactly how everyone is feeling and you can't like nail it down to one particular direction or another? What do you mean you guys don't interpret <laughs> different visual stimuli as sounds or smells? So I thought that was a really well done. I really like that because um, there's actually a quote in the book that kind of speaks almost directly to what Talia is talking about. Um, the first speaker tells the mule, um, most humans can read emotion in a primitive manner by associating it pragmatically with facial expression, tone of voice, and so on. A good many animals possess the faculty to a higher degree. They use the sense of smell to a good extent, and the emotions involved are, of course, less complex. Actually, humans are capable of much more, but the faculty of direct emotional contact tended to atrophy with the development of speech a million years back. It has been the great advance of our second foundation that this forgotten sense has been restored to at least some of its potentialities. And I find this particularly interesting because I would never have thought of speech as as a detriment or a a handicap almost of any kind to our mental faculties because speech in general is regarded by most people as a superpower of a sort if you think purely from like a biological or evolutionary standpoint. So the idea that speech can actually hinder us from tapping into the full faculties of our mind is kind of like a kind of like a fascinating idea, I think. Yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, like they, they say as much, right. In the, in the other quote that we had, like talking about how it's just like inefficient, you know, to get across ideas. And so if you don't have that, 
that power or that that ability to speak, then the other senses are are heightened and you can just communicate faster. But but there is that thing in the animal kingdom that like like for humans, like sight is our primary sense through which we perceive the world. But for other animals, it's usually smell and they don't rely as much on sight. So if you see like like I've seen like cats that have gone blind and they act like they they live their lives as if like nothing has gone wrong with them. Mm. And that's because like they perceive their world largely through scent. So it's it's just like it, it's a it's a it's an experience that we can't wrap our minds around because we don't use scent as our primary source, uh, sense. So it, it's fascinating to think about it that way. Another thing I found was really interesting was kind of the exploration into Pritchard and his character arc over this chapter or this uh, this part of the book, I guess, um, and how he's kind of always struggling against the the fact that he's controlled and like he's kind of worrying about you know have I lost my step the the have I lost my ability to actually be effective because I'm being controlled and then just his kind of genuine fear around being controlled by not only by the mule but by the second foundation I guess that's because of the fact that he's been controlled by the mule and he doesn't he doesn't feel any different he says you know he feels like I'm fine normally except for the fact that I just love the mule now, but he's clearly not right. Like there's clear, he's clearly like always struggling with this control in his, in his brain. I thought it was a very useful device to have Han Pritcher, you know, usher us into this new section because we get to see him a continuation of that story. And I know we spoke in our first uh, episode about how we can't really get attached to any character and we're jumping so sporadically. So the continuity is nice. Uh, if a bit lonely to see that he can't really know what to trust and we're not even sure whether we can trust him when he's telling the mule when he's basically actually pleading with the mule to let him have this solo expedition because he's been going on expeditions to find the second foundation for five years and his boss is saddling him with someone who is so much better than he is because he's unconverted and he's so jealous about that and even says well what okay well i'm so loyal to you now why don't you unconvert me and we're not sure is this a prisoner who's seeing his final chance and you know knows that he'll be restored to his old self when he's unconverted and knows he'll be able to kill his boss or does he really truly believe he'll be loyal but good enough to get the mule's approval i mean it's a very good way to be introduced into this section yeah and we know his personality and we know you know from the the last Mm -hmm. part of of the last book how uh, how insubordinate he is around, you know, to how he went to the mayor and like the mayor is like, you, know, you got to do this. And he's like, nope, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Right. Yeah. Uh, this section wasn't as funny as the last one. Last one was yeah. very funny, but, I mean, but good you, in other ways. But yeah, like, you know, we could just tell his independent streak, you know, and how he's like self-motivated and like, he knows what he is best for him. But now he has like this conflict himself was like, well, I'm controlled by the mule. Is that corrupting my ability to do my what I want to do effectively. Well, it's a ludicrous idea that who you love and what you fear and who you're loyal to have no impact on the rest of your personality. The idea that those could all be altered, but like otherwise you're the same is preposterous. Yeah, especially when your loyalty is then you know around you know basically his job right is to like he's now loyal to a government that he would not have been uh, loyal to previously, and in fact like strongly strongly against it. So who knows what else has changed in his mind and like, did he lose an edge because of it? Yeah, I had a lot of thoughts on this part. (laughs) Um, I think like it, what's so terrifying about this part um, where you're kind of um, where Han Pritchard's mindset is being revealed to you is that he becomes especially afraid once he um, arrives at um, Rossum and he is, he's aware that the second foundationers can also control minds this way. And he describes this fear later on to Chenis of being split in two. And um, earlier, he, when he arrives, he's ruminating when he's about to meet the governor 
about how he could never tell when the fuel be, the mule began controlling his emotions. And the quote is, what if the insubstantial mental tendrils of a second foundationer insinuated themselves down the emotional crevices of his makeup and pulled them apart and rejoined them? There had been no sensation the first time. There had been no pain, no mental jar, not even a feeling of discontinuity. It is a really frightening idea, I think. And there's also something the first speaker later says about Chana's volunteering that the huge chance of damage to his mind is a more fearful alternative than that of mere physical crippling. And I think Pritchard is likely afraid of a similar fate, though he doesn't quite know what could happen to his mind if it ends up being split in this manner. But I think like he's beginning to almost feel like a physical strain upon his mind in this moment. And um, that just kind of speaks to the significant power of controlling the minds of people versus controlling them physically. Because there's also this moment where Chanis encounters the people of Rossum and says, don't you see that the whole orientation of their domination is different? It's not physical, but psychological. They speak of punishment only of others. It's as if knowledge of punishment has been so well implanted in them that punishment itself need never be used. The proper mental attitudes are so inserted into their minds that I'm certain that not a Tazendian soldier exists on the planet. And all of this ties together this, this foray into understanding human psychology and what happens if you like were to possess the ability to tamper with a human mind in this way and also the fact that the logical part of the brain is still working in the background and knows what's going on but is powerless to control it yeah i think it's a lot more it's a lot more terrifying that to not be in control of things you can't see right like physical you can overcome right like if it was like if he was in chains or whatever like he has the potential of, you can see in front of him and he can escape but like it's just like getting a disease, right? That you can't fight um, because you can't, you just physically, you can't, there's nothing you can do about it, right? Like it's just, it's just like something that's, that's unseen. And I think it makes it even more and more terrifying. Right. Cause he's like, I don't, I can't remember a time when I didn't love the mule and I love the mule, but also at the same time, he knows he's still aware that he was the mule's adversary. So it's just, yeah. Like his brain is being like ripped apart with these two conflicting ideas that it can't reconcile. Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts, which is linked in my profile on rehydrate.space, is one that deals with concepts of self um, through an artificial intelligence who's you know managing a population colony, really, of humanity. And there are different artificial intelligences and in one instance, one of them has to be deactivated. And this is done as a surprise. And there are new instances brought online. And of course, the new instance has a memory that goes all the way back to its inception. It doesn't think there is any gap, but everyone around it knows, like, actually, you died. Like, that's no longer you. Just because you remember and you feel everything, it's different. And it's scary to think of that in biological terms as well organic, I should say, terms. Although speaking of which, and the hosts were talking about this a little bit, we haven't seen any non-organic life that I can tell. And that is a little unusual for Isaac Asimov and for science fiction in general. Yeah, I think the the whole the whole robot series is supposed to connect to the Foundation series, as far as I've read. I don't know how. I haven't read the robot series, but yeah, it's uh we haven't yeah, we haven't seen any really artificial intelligence or anything. I mean, like, I guess, like, the whole conceit of the foundation is that a lot of that knowledge is lost, I guess. And so maybe that did, that was a thing. And then that starts out a feeling and people didn't have the knowledge to continue to continue to make new ones or fix old ones. So maybe that's why we're not seeing a lot of technology in that, in that regard. I think we were also speaking right before we started recording about if there are non-humans in this universe. And I don't know that there are. I think everyone's a human, right? Like, because they said, I, I forget who said it, but like they're talking about quintillions of of humans across the the galaxy of now part of the empire. So, are any of these species aliens? Or I don't think the second foundation is right because they all came from Trantor at some point or descended from there. Obviously, they're on a different level mentally, but I think they're still humans. Yeah, I have very um, I I I when I think about that, I feel like I go down a rabbit hole of thinking like 
can they possibly still technically be humans if they are so far removed from that original seed of humanity? Like it just seems boggling to the mind. Um, and like over that period of time, I would have expected like evolution to happen and drastically change humanity as a species, especially because they're all subjected to very different climates on different planets. So yeah, I, I think like I almost have to suspend my disbelief in like evolution <laughs> to be able to accept that everyone that far into the future across different galaxies is all still human. So like in my in my mind I feel like they're not all still human, you know? It's it's an interesting like it seems like they're all descended from humans, but maybe not the humans that we know. Actually, it reminds me in this section, this is the first time I think we heard about a language that's not the standard language. Like the Rossumites, oh, yeah? like, when they're when they're in their council meeting and they're asking asking Pritchard and Chanis questions about like, is, is every world this cold? Do you guys shave? But anyway, like they said, like they they talked in a, you know in a different dialect, right? Um, so that, I think that's the first time they mentioned it that I remember uh, hearing about a different language that wasn't just the standard. I forgot what they called it, but the standard speech. I, I didn't write it down, but there was also this this really fascinating quote about how they seem to always be like on the verge of understanding, but never quite getting to that place of uh, comprehension, which was really fascinating because it seems almost like they're they've kind of lost that human ability of like higher level thinking almost and become a little more primitive is what mm. it seemed to be implying. So that was a little interesting to me. Maybe they're being suppressed on purpose, right? Like it's possible. Uh, maybe it's not just a matter of their environment and like their their loss of, because they, they seem to have lost a lot of technological ability, right? Like they can't get their car working and like the, they're just farmers and like the super cold world and they don't, and it seems like they, they've really reverted to like a, a super old uh, style of life there. So yeah, maybe they're just being suppressed, you know, over the long term. Or maybe it was part of Selden's plan, right? To like suppress this world because like they know that uh, the mule is eventually going to go there <laughs> then, you know, and, and trap him. True. I always go back to this place where I um, think of H.G. Wells, The Time Machine, and that uh, sort of opens up a conversation about like evolution and de-evolution where um, mm. if if an individual if if not an individual but a species doesn't has overcome like all adversities like in the natural world and they have nothing else to do like nothing further to innovate they start to um, de-evolve and become like a weaker version of themselves like my my mind went there when I looked at the people of Rossum and but in their case it seems like there is a lot of adversity actually in their natural world that they don't actually have any control over so yeah. it seems like in their case it probably is a degree of like suppression of like you know the mental faculties versus like an actual inability to think more critically if that makes sense yeah 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 so just in general like this section had so many plot twists. Um, I know we kind of talk, spoke about it in the the general impressions, but like I said, like in the last book, we had one plot twist where it was the the mule. In this one, there was just every around every corner was like <laughs> every sentence was was a different plot twist. Uh, and I I like the kind of visual of you know originally it was like Pritcher and Chanis, like they were kind of like at you know battling each other, and then Pritcher is like the the least mentally able of of all of them, right? And so he falls off and the mule is against Chanis. And then and then Chanis is like the next one to drop off because he's like the most uh, mentally inferior. And then the first citizen comes in and, and then the mule drops off. So I, 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 I mean, in my mind, like I, I see like, I, I'm thinking of like Pritchard and Chanis eventually just like laying their catatonic, uh, you know, in the presence of like these great minds of the mule and the first citizen. I hope we have some way of showing that visually on screen. Uh, I'm not sure if you read uh, Madeline Langle. I'm not sure if it's A Wind in the Door or A Swiftly Tilting Planet. No, it was the first one. It was A Wrinkle in Time. And the uh, the mental presence, it, uh, which is, you know, power purely through mental ability. And I remember it being so vivid in the book. So, you know, it's been maybe 10, 15 years since I revisited it. And I hope there's some way that they can display that on screen. If there's a non-spoiler way for you to tell us about that, Priya, I'm interested. Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. 
yeah, I'm actually, yeah, I still haven't watched the TV show. Um, I, I, I'm still not sure if I want to start reading and watching it after I finish the trilogy or after I finish reading all seven books. I'm not, I'm not sure yet. Yeah. I still can't say what things that I saw in the show came from any books. I still can't tell. So uh. it's hard for me <laughs> to, um, I feel like it's even a spoiler to say that like something was or was not in the show. Right. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. a bit of a spoiler. So that's why I feel like I can't really say anything except to say that the show seems to take a lot of uh, liberties as a show. But I mm-hmm. don't know if there are things that are in the show that will come in like book seven or something. But yeah. that could be a spoiler too. Damn it. <laughs> Let me not say <laughs> anything further about the show. <laughs> as, as far as I know, like the series, like after this trilogy, it goes two more sequels and then two prequels. Hmm. As far as I remember, that's how it breaks down. I'm not a spoiler versus Dan, so I might start watching, and I also might look up the timeline for Foundation because uh, that sounds very interesting to me. Well, if you if you do watch, let me know what you think because I I I do enjoy the show uh, for whatever it is. Like I don't know how much license it's taking, but I I feel like it's it's a different experience totally than reading the book. Oh, definitely, mm-hmm. I will. Okay, well, the last point that I had, and I know Priya had another point you want to bring up, but the last one I want to just kind of ask if you have any ideas of what the secret of the second foundation is. It seems like Miss recognized it. Um, Chanis recognizes it at the end when his mind gets unblocked. And it seems like there's just more to it than it's just another, it's a foundation in a different place, right? It seems to like have a, a bigger secret. So I was wondering if you all had any ideas of what that might be. Like, are, did they did they even have a physical form? Are they, I, I don't know. Like, th- this seems to be more than just another group of people on a different on a distant planet. I actually don't have any guesses, but it's sort of like Chanis's experience of waking up and back on the foundation, wherever it is, kind of reminded me of those um, those scenes where like uh, Ching Shin or someone, one of the characters in um, Remembrance of Earth's past series wakes up in like a completely different world, like far into the future. Hmm. And they're sort of like utter confusion and amazement at like what that world looks like and how it's like nothing they had ever seen in their lifetimes or experienced like that sense came over me through how Chanis seems to perceive that world when he's just like waking up in it again so um it seems that there's like a a lot happening that's not yet being revealed to the reader um which is fascinating because like that makes me just want to read further <laughs> maybe like the second foundation is like out of just out of time in general like they're not in the Ooh. same like they, they don't experience time in the same way um and that's why the southern's plan can work which would make a lot of sense because like i'm i'm gonna go big i think selden lives i think we're gonna get more harry selden that's my big wild yeah. prediction <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past the series, right? Like, it is weird for the most mythical figure of of the series just to be gone after what the first part, the second part, maybe not, not, not very long. And the and like, he's not alive, right? He shows up in hologram form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe he just transcended time and like he's able to travel in the the fourth dimension or whatever. If you subscribe to the fourth dimension being time, anyway, he can travel outside of time. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and that's how he's able to make these these completely accurate predictions. Maybe I'm just we'll making see. it up now. <laughs> no, I think that would make psychohistory very toothless. If it's just like it is more interesting that it's like all derived out of formulas, right? Like he was able to like put a bunch of math mm-hmm. equations together and like predict yes. the future, and you know, exactly three thousand years of the future. <laughs> but there's definitely something else going on with the second foundation, I, and I, I'm I would be very surprised if it's just another group of guys on some remote planet that we didn't we haven't seen before if you've listened this long i think you deserve to hear about the astounding actual events of history that were happening around the time of isaac asimov in the 1950s great transition (laughs) (laughs) um so i i started thinking um and i wasn't even going to go down this rabbit hole because um i had no idea about this particular um, thing that was going on at the time that Asimov was writing uh, Second Foundation. But I started thinking about um, 
uh, something that comes up a lot in the real world, which is uh, physical torture versus mental torture. I mean, it doesn't come up a lot in the real world in our world, but like when we talk about like war and um, some of the very unfortunate and I quote strategy because I don't really think it's a strategy strategies that are pretty heinous that are used during war um, with uh, prisoners of war. And we, there's a lot of discussion of whether physical torture is actually effective or not. The general consensus is that it's not, but that it's psychological torture that ends up leaving deeper scars on people, such as like solitary confinement or sensory deprivation, which are things that are far more traumatizing. And these are unfortunately used a lot to kind of break a person down mentally and when we're reading this book, it's kind of easy to think like, oh, he's doing this cool party trick of mind control. But when you get a glimpse into Pritchard's mindset, you start to think, well, this is actually psychological torture, what's happening to him. And you see in the case of Ebling Miss and how his his mind starts to like fall apart. He starts to physically deteriorate. And we see that mind control can be a really gruesome form of torture when we see those things happening and of course how he like actually kills someone through um influencing their mind and that's where i started going down this rabbit hole um of what was actually going on during asimov and the time he was writing uh which is that uh and i've i've uh linked a npr article which is a interview between terry gross and uh journalist stephen Kin kinzer uh, where they talk about how in the 1950s, the CIA was actually working on mind control drugs and deadly toxins that can be used against enemies. And basically the premise, which is to quote a little bit from this interview, is that during the early period of the Cold War in the 40s and early 50s, the CIA became paralyzed with a fear that communists had perfected some kind of a drug or potion or a technique that would allow them to control human minds. And this was actually a greatly exaggerated fear. But but it played on something cultural that affected everybody that grew up in the early 20th century. We were fed a lot of books and movies about the idea of mind control, probably Asimov's book being one of those um, books about the idea of mind control that could hypnotize someone or give someone a drug that would make them do something that otherwise they would never do. And seized by this myth, the CIA not only believed that communists had approached or reached this holy grail, but that the CIA should also find a way to do it. So there's this um, project called MK Ultra that lasted up to 10 years in which the CIA sought to find ways to control the human mind. They wanted to be able to have a truth serum that would make prisoners say everything they knew, also an amnesiac that would make people forget that they ha had what they had done, and most important, a technique or drug that would allow the CIA to direct agents to carry out acts like sabotage or assassination and then forget who had ordered them to do it, or even that they'd carried out the actions at all. So MK Ultra was the most sustained search in history for techniques of mind control. So the fact that this was going on at the time that Asimov was writing, and I'm sure that people didn't know of MK Ultra at the time by name or that the CIA was itself dabbling in this, but the fact that there were rumors flying around that the Soviet Union did have such a technique or drug or potion or whatever was was probably permeating the minds and instilling probably a lot of terror in people at the time that inspired a lot of these works of, of, of fiction that sort of seem inspired by it. I don't know what you guys feel about that, but it was fascinating to me because I had never heard of this. It seems so directly linked to what we see happening in this so-called warfare between the mule and second foundation. Yeah, the I would imagine like the general sentiment of the communists taking over and controlling people and, you know, making them evil or whatever people were the, the red scare stuff that was happening back then was definitely prevalent in the, in the culture. Right. And that probably made its way to the operatives of the CIA, you know, same way, like stuff happens today that, you know, that gets in the culture and then like infiltrates the government. Right. <laughs> and like the government's just made of normal people. Right. So those, some of those people might be easily influenced. And unfortunately, like in, positions of power where they can develop mind control drugs, I guess. I mean, do we know like how, like how effective it was? Like, I mean, I, I don't like, what did they, uh, what's been made out of it? Like what, what was the end result? Like what would happen after 10 years? It's largely ineffective. 
Well, we we know that like LSD actually was one of the drugs that they were uh, using and did experiments on people. And it's um, all in the article, um, which maybe Dan can link. Um, LSD was one of the drugs where they were doing like experiments on people to see the extent to which they could control people by getting them addicted to LSD, basically. Well, just so just for some clarity, MK Ultra is the code name for a series of illegal human experimentation that was carried out by the CIA over oh. the course of 10 years. Oh, okay. Well, then, yeah, then that's much worse than I was yeah. expecting. It included it included illegally dosing people with astronomically high doses of LSD uh, mm-hmm. to see what effect that would have. Would that make someone go crazy? Would that make someone reveal truth that they had? Would it make them forget themselves? And very importantly, with all of these experimentations, whether they were physical or psychological, were would this influence a person so much that what they had to say would be discredited? I think it's really fascinating, though, because like you can imagine like the paranoia at the time, um, because we know that there was a lot of paranoia over spies, like Russian spies. And like it's one thing for you to have spies amongst you who can like listen to conversations and find out information through speech. But if they're if they're was this belief in people that they had a way of looking into your mind and extracting information like that probably would have led to a lot of paranoia and heightened emotions around that. And I think that you see that coming forth a lot in the book. Yeah. Just that general state of fear is is able, you know, justifies a lot of like these evil acts, right? We see that all the time. And Mm -hmm. I think the mule is trying to justify his, his, uh, his actions here also by saying he wants to rule the galaxy and make it peaceful this time because they did him wrong and he's not gonna that's not gonna happen under my rule um so he he's okay with like you know controlling controlling minds and so yeah it happens in real life unfortunately as well yeah and it's it's like you know in the last book i felt like because of his um relationship or whatever it was with beta we kind of almost grew to see him as a sympathetic character or like at least multi-dimensional like yes he's doing all of these awful things but there is like another side to him that it's not like all black or white um when it comes to the mule but i think what you see him doing in this this part of the book and you, you see the consequences of what he's doing in Han Pritcher and then you see how he can destroy an entire world without feeling any remorse or sentimentality and that kind of makes you realize that he is actually a really like terrible person and like a formidable force of evil in a sense and I think that's a sense you don't get as much in the previous book as you do in this one. No, I definitely agree. Yeah, he's he's pretty almost sympathetic in the last book. I think I, I agree there. Like we're not because like the the foundation of that point has been kind of shown to be almost tyrannical, right? Like the the mayors are ruling by by just heredity now, and you know, and and they're kind of becoming the new empire. And so the mule, like he's also not great, but like because <laughs> he's just taking over worlds with uh, mind control, I guess. But you don't see like I guess the effect of it until this book. And now this book, yeah, definitely. Like he he's just an evil guy in this book. Like there's no really I mean, there's the kind of more pathetic side to him later on, for lack of a better word. Like, you know, when he gets controlled by the um by the the first speaker, you know, he's like pretty easily controlled by him, right? Like he he gets his self out in there. I think it would be it would be a better direction to take the mule if we had any idea or if he had any idea about his plans for succession. He seems yeah. to sort of hint at it to Bill Tannis, like maybe if you don't cross me, but then that thread is sort of dropped. And because we know that he can't reproduce on his own, um, I would like to see him contemplating how he can have an empire that's longer than his own life. And it would make his fall more dramatic. And it would also just give us more. He also knew at that point that Tannis was a second foundationer though. So I'm pretty sure he's just luring with him, like trying to like, I don't know. Like he's just trying to manipulate him, right? Um, by by trying, he believes that he can make him believe that you know he's not onto him, right? And so, like by saying like, "Oh, maybe be my heir," I don't know. That's just more more a control without actually emotionally controlling him. I also think so far for me, um, going back to what you were saying earlier, what we were saying earlier about um, uh, the mule not 
not being a sympathetic character any longer. I think that also doesn't let second foundation off the hook either because they're essentially doing the same thing. And when the first speaker talks about Chanis, he's saying that basically they were okay with just sending this person off basically as a pawn, knowing that there was this risk of him breaking down mentally. And it almost seems like they have all of these, they have volunteers. They call, I mean, they're volunteers, but I don't think anybody really realizes the, um, the, what would happen if your mind is tampered with in that way. And it's almost like sending people off on like suicide missions, essentially. Um, because if they end up like, I don't know, brain dead after it, this is so funny in the context of MK Ultra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's it's they're doing something that's not really um and also the fact that they were totally okay with both these worlds of Tazenda and um Rossum being destroyed uh, like because they put them in these strategic locations where they intended for them to be mistaken as the location of the second foundation with no regard to the fact that people would lose their lives. They're like, yeah, we got some people out, but still millions died. And they're <laughs> like, it's a price that's worth paying for, for what? And so I, I don't think that the second foundation is any more noble so far than the mule. And that's just the sense that I get. I don't know if I go that far, but because the mule is like shown to be shown to be kind of evil. I mean, pretty evil in this in this one. But yeah, like I think you're right. Like they don't really regard the lack of. I mean, the the first speaker seems sort of, I guess, sad about the thing. Like he's like, ah, it's, it's really too bad that you know you you destroyed all this world. Like he kind of felt bad about it, but not really. It was more like. Like, oh, I lost like a dollar. That sucks. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, that's the sense that I got too. Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, like it's unfortunate, but like, what can we do? You know? Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's like, yes, we strategically put these people here to kind of throw you off and now they lose their lives for it. And that's all part of the plan, which is kind of right. really sinister. And, and he was saying, like, we got the important people off, right? We got, <laughs> we did all we could to get the important people off. But the other people, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of horrific, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe it's just all kind of wrapped into Selden's theory around how people don't matter in the plan. You know, it, like individual people don't matter. And even like at this scale of quintillions, right? A couple million on one remote world is not going to affect his plan in the in the long run, right? But like the second foundationers are really bought into Selden's plan. So maybe that's why they don't they don't care that much or don't they seemingly don't care that much. Yeah, it just makes you think a lot about how like um when you refer to people as like just casualties in war, it's just like I think this book really makes you think about that because it's it's like there's a lot of talk of like the greater good with this that like oh these people have to die but the greater good is that we reduce the period of of warfare and conflict from like several thousands of years to like a single thousand year stretch of time and still as a human being you're caught up in that sense of like well still for these strategies to be laid out this way you are intentionally putting people in harm's way that may not otherwise have been in harm's way so it's it's a very interesting idea to think about at least even though there's no like right or wrong answer i feel right yeah i mean they they can only hope for the best right they like well this is going to save a lot of people in the future but people in the present are going to (laughs) suffer sorry sorry tazenda r.i.p tazenda Thank you very much for listening. Please check out Rehydrates.space for release episodes, reading lists, pronunciation guides, and all the other stuff we put up on the website. Leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at RehydratePod. And join us next episode for Season 6, Episode 8, Arcadia, covering Part 2, Chapter 7-14 to 14 of Second Foundation by Isaac Asimov. And please stay tuned for a promo of a podcast that we highly recommend, Selden Crisis, following this episode. Almost 80 years ago, a young man in his early 20s created a legendary work of science fiction that still rocks our world today. 
In Selden Crisis, I dive into the greatest future epic ever told, Isaac Asimov's Foundation. Each episode is a personal exploration of this great work, combining dramatic storytelling with commentary and analysis, bringing characters like Hari Selden, Salvor Hardin, and the Mule to life, and exploring how the great ideas in this story are still relevant in our times. How does a civilization react when scientists foretell catastrophe? Can we learn from this brilliant work of genius and rise to the challenges we face in our own lives? Please join me on Selden Crisis, the podcast.